0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogies podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Lachlan, and I am filled with gratitude today. Australia has joined the international listenership, and 27 of 50 U.S. states are now listening today. That is so cool, and I am really excited. So thank you very much for that. Over 300 downloads since January 2nd show me that I am doing something right, and I really appreciate you joining me here today. Last week ran a little long, for which I apologize, so this week I'm keeping it more concise. This episode is called Tell Me the Truth, Genealogy for Biographers. Novelists don't feel left out. I'll address genealogy for fiction authors in a future episode, and yeah, it actually is a little bit different. When I was in my undergrad, earning a history degree. I wrote a research paper to receive departmental honors. I wrote about a virtually undocumented event in labor and police history, but I wasn't able to draw the conclusions I wanted to about causality and the roots of the actions taken by key figures in those events. After thinking about it for a year or two, I realized that the answer to my questions and the path from a thesis to a book lay in genealogical research. If you're a writer of nonfiction, I think you can benefit from my experience. The background story is this. In October and November of 1913, Workers for the street railway system in Indianapolis, Indiana, were trying to unionize. This was part of a larger, decades-long national effort to unionize railway workers of all kinds. And because Indianapolis is a city that was largely founded on being an intersection of multiple railroads, this was an important event in labor and in railroad history, and a very important event, for that matter, in Indianapolis labor history. The streetcar workers did strike and one person was killed in subsequent rioting. In the face of the strike, the street railway company employed strike breakers also known as scabs. Scabs were workers who were not employed by the company prior to the dispute. They were hired during the strike to keep the streetcars running so that the system's owners could keep making money. Striking workers and sympathetic citizens tried to stop the cars from running altogether hence the violence. You have to understand that 1913 Indianapolis was known as the street railway capital of the world. You could board a streetcar in Evansville, Indiana, which is in the southwest corner of the state, right on the Ohio River, and ride the streetcar system north to Indianapolis through northern Indiana and all the way to Chicago without stopping. That trip is over 350 miles long. The cars were open-sided, so it wouldn't have been the most comfortable mode of transport in winter, but the point is that the system ran all over the state, and you could make that trip if you chose. It was crucial to commuters from outlying suburbs that would later be incorporated into Indianapolis, shoppers from all parts of town, and the national reputation of the city. Incidentally, it was gradually replaced by buses with the increasing use of the internal combustion engine, and Indianapolis, honestly, now has one of the worst bus systems ever. (laughs) But that is a whole other tragic story of heartbreak in itself, and I'm not going to go right there right now. So back to the streetcar strike. Indianapolis beat cops were charged with protecting the safety of the streets, but some cops didn't wanna protect strike breakers, So the entire force was given two options. One, serve on the cars to protect the scab workers, or two, request reassignment to other duties that allowed them to continue to police without challenging the strike. 33 policemen chose alternate duties, and as soon as they did, they were charged with mutiny. Let me say that again. These police were charged with mutiny. They were hauled up in front of the public safety board for trial. The National Guard were called in to stop the violence and the cops were tried. They were acquitted and life went on. If you know anything about Indiana politics, you know that it has been a very conservative place for a very long time. But in 1913, it wasn't. In fact, Terre Haute, Indiana, produced Eugene Victor Debs, a Democratic member of the Indiana General Assembly who worked to unionize multiple sectors of the railroad industry before changing parties and running for national office. He ran as a socialist six times. For president in 1900, earning 0.6 of the popular vote. For president in 1904, earning 3% of the popular vote. A nice jump there. For president in 1908, earning 2.8% of the popular vote. For president in 1912, earning 6% of the popular vote, the most ever won by a socialist candidate. For U.S. Congress in 1916 and again for president in 1920, earning 3.4% of the popular vote while sitting in a prison cell because he spoke against U.S. involvement in World War I. Why, in the midst of all this socialist activity and unionization against powerful capitalists who ran the city, were beat cops even given the chance to avoid service that would benefit the streetcar company? Why did 33 of them say yes? None of them were members of the Socialist Party. What were the motivations behind the various actors in this play? What happened in the public safety board hearings concerning the 33 mutinous officers? And why on earth were landlubbers deemed mutinous by the city government? I don't think I'm ever going to get over that last question. When I was writing my thesis, I only had access to paper records in the Indiana State Archives, the State Historical Society, and Indiana University's Lilly Library. I used the governor's personal papers, news articles from microfilm, and a few other documentary resources. The files from the lawyers involved were long since destroyed. Everybody who participated was dead. It was a perfect storm of too little information and too many questions. At least I had the IPD pension cards. They helped a lot. The IPD started as a night force in 1854. Police employment was a political plum, with jobs being given out to the applicants as a reward for support during political campaigns or to guarantee enforcement of specific politically driven municipal laws. By 1913, the IPD served during the day and during the night, and they learned a few lessons from past corruption. They recorded the political affiliation of each cop on his pension record because the IPD had to hire an equal number of Democrats and Republicans to the force. Imagine anybody doing that now. This is how they prevented a ruling party at the city or state level from running the streets with impunity. Those pension cards were awesome, but the data about political affiliations was insufficient to explain any cop's motivations. I needed personal histories. I tried to find descendants of the participants in hopes of capturing some folklore, but I could only place ads in newspapers and hope for responses. The ads yielded nothing, and the white pages-based mass mailing I sent out gave me very little too. Even with the newspaper articles for microfilm, the governor's personal manuscripts and other records, I didn't have adequate fuel for the conclusions that the paper deserved, so I had to submit it as a history with a few notions about motivations. Yes, I got those departmental honors, thank you very much for asking, but I still wanted to flesh out the project into a full book. And the biggest questions remained, what was up with those 33 cops? I wanted to know where these people and their families came from, whether they or their family members were affiliated with unionized or unionizing trades before or during their police service, and why they chose to support striking members of a growing union. A few years later, when Ancestry came into being, I realized that I could trace the policemen's and politicians' family trees for that missing biographical information. I could even find family photographs that way. So I started a tree for every named participant in the police mutiny and its prosecution and defense, which ran to about 50 trees. My goal was to take all of the participants' families back to Europe because all the participants were white and then to understand their American and European ancestors' involvements with the labor movement in or just prior to 1913. I also wanted to see what happened to these police officers after 1913. Did they stay on the job? Did they go into other fields, unionized fields? I figured it would explain the individual participants' influences and perhaps their motivations in supporting strikers or in prosecuting or defending the mutinous cops. Since 2015, I've incorporated newspapers.com into my research. I was able to find some local news articles on microfilm during the initial research, but the availability of news coverage from numerous papers across the United States has increased and continues to increase in newspapers.com on a daily basis. At the time of my initial research, I didn't realize that there were newspapers in other cities who were also covering the events of 1913. So now I can access those things with newspapers.com. What I found so far has been very interesting and it's leading me to the next layer of investigation. Some cops were German and Irish, so my research has taken me into the trade unionist movement of 19th century Ireland and Western Europe. Other cops were Quaker, So for them, Quaker history and its involvement in pacifism and labor history are logical next steps. And one cop was a Russian-born Jew, a former jeweler, very improbable for Indianapolis at the time. That takes me back to his roots in Russia, when and why he came to America, and how his sympathies were affected by Russian history as well as Jewish history. I have a lot more solid research ahead of me based on other people's written works. so this book isn't headed to a publisher anytime soon, but I'm well on my way, and that's what's important. Yeah, I can hear you. So blah, 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 Carolyn, how does this apply to me as a biographer or nonfiction author? How can I master the forces of genealogy in researching my subjects? Yeah, chill out, dude. I'm getting there. The way you start is the same, whether you're researching one person or 20 it's this simple. Buy memberships to Ancestry, Bin Verified, or another enhanced white pages like site, and newspapers.com. Then use all of them together to find ancestors and descendants of your subject or subjects. For every real person you're researching, start a new tree in Ancestry. If your subject is famous enough, you can get the basic BMDDs birth, marriage, divorce, and death, names, dates, and places from Wikipedia or another online source, or grab them from an existing biography. Regardless, start the tree as I taught you last week in episode seven, I Wish You Were Dead. Enter the full name of your subject in the correct fields, first, middle, and baptismal names and initials in the first name field, last name or maiden name in the last name field, and senior, junior, rev for reverend, sergeant, or whatever may apply in the suffix field. Enter the birth date of the subject in the international format, day, space, spelled out month name, space, year. Provide the full birthplace in the place field in ascending order, town, comma county, comma state, comma country. Do the same for death, date, and place if applicable. Next, enter the same information for your subject's father, then your subject's mother. Save the tree under the name of your project. My book projects are all name the same thing, like for this one book, you know, in these 50 trees, one tree is book in capitals and then a colon and then the name is uh, Hanford Burke and then comma cop because that's what he was or book colon Taylor Groninger defense attorney so that I can immediately identify the significance of the person I'm working on in relation to the entire story. Make the tree private rather than public so that your errors and you will make them do not become standardized across ancestry when they're picked up by untrained and undiscerning researchers. Use federal census records first to build families. Pay close attention to the roles of the people in each household in each census. You can find grandparents and cousins, aunts and uncles, all of these different members of the family living under the same roof in census records of nuclear families if you are paying attention. Why the federal census? The US federal census provides the street address for the family's abode. It provides the language spoken in the house, the trade of the father, and other employed persons in the house, the level of education for each person, whether or not they read and write English, whether they own or rent property, and the dollar value of that owned property, and more. Even if the subject is in a census record, but his or her parents are not, your subject's parents' birthplaces are provided, which can help you push back a generation. It can also give you an idea of your subject's neighborhood, who he or she went to school with. Check out neighboring families on that same census page. What school he or she attended. Find and check local school district records from the neighborhood in the period of each of these census records. How many siblings may have died in childhood? Um, A child who shows up in the 1900 census but not the 1910 likely died in the interim, and that may be important. Use Google Maps to examine the neighborhood and get current street views of the subject's house, if it still stands. Examine the languages spoken by the families around your subject in the neighborhood and how much money they had. Get a feel for the texture of your subject's childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Add everything else that correctly pertains to your subject after that, state censuses, birth, marriage, divorce, and death records, wills and probate records, city directories, religious records. Save photographs that you find in Ancestry, but save them to your hard drive first, then add them to the tree so that you won't lose those records should the original poster's tree be deleted or made private. Once you've added all possible records to your subject, work on the parents, then on the subject siblings. The pattern is always subject, then back to the parents, then sideways to the siblings, and then down to the cousins. As you do this, you will trace to living descendants, direct and ancillary. These people could hold crucial records and photos that you might need for your book or project. Once you've built that far, consult Newspapers.com to find obituaries and news stories about your subject and his or her family members. And keep in mind that every single day, Newspapers.com adds new newspapers, new resources. So just keep looking. Then, if you're out of living descendants for photos or letters or family stories, go to Bin Verified and search for those people because you may well find them alive and well and happy to talk to you. Finally, because there may be people to talk to you, prepare to take folkloric evidence for use in your book or project. Listen to episode four, The Glory of the Story, and use those guidelines to inform how you take your information. Remember that family stories don't reveal the truth so much as they reveal the family's view of the truth those views after getting impersonal documentary evidence from the historical record will tell you even more about your subject and the people that he or she came from these attitudes and opinions make for very interesting commentary on the truth from these resources you can write much more than just a straight history of your subject while not everything you find may make it into the book A genealogical survey of your subject's whole life and ancestry can provide a good deal of meat that a bare bones history desperately needs. You can get to know your subject, his or her ancestors, and really live in the milieu of your subject's bygone world. Utilizing genealogical skills and tools will make you a better researcher and writer in every conceivable way, and the final product will be richer for your research. Anybody can read books and papers and write a book from them. That's just salt and pepper. Only you can create a uniquely informed biography or account using genealogy. That's full spice and flavor. So what did we learn today? Apparently, police on dry land can commit mutiny if rich guys say so. Indiana used to be a breeding ground for socialists. Newly developed technologies have made genealogical research for biographers and other non- fiction researchers easy and rewarding. And in my opinion, taking advantage of these resources when compiling a history will make you a superior researcher and yield a product that has more imagination and detail than anything else on the market. Thank you so much for listening. If you podcast and you want original theme music like mine, and who wouldn't, email my good friend Kurt Brady at curtisbrady at yahoo.com. Tell him I sent you. He can hook you up with rock, blues, country, folk, pretty much anything. If you have a concept or a musical sample, he can write it, play it, and record it. Would you like to ask an on-air question? I'm in the U.S. So if you're calling from outside the country, use the country code 010, then dial 631-201-0589 and leave a message with your name, location, and question. I'll play it and answer it on air. But here's a question I'd like you to answer, and you can call me or reply to me on Twitter, Facebook, or my website. This is my eighth episode. I know it's early days, but I'd like to know which has been your favorite episode so far and why. Call me with that if you like. The number again is 010 for international callers, then 631-201-0589. Otherwise, you know where you can find me. I'm always here. I'm online at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and on Facebook at ancestorsalivegenealogy. Follow me on Twitter at AncestorsAlive and on Instagram at AncestorsAliveGenealogy. If you have a request, a dispute, a book recommendation, or a question for the mailbag, you can contact me at alive Genealogy at gmail.com. And please, if you find value in this podcast, and I certainly hope that you do, support me on Patreon and win or earn valuable prizes go to patreon.com/ancestorsalive and sign up for any of five support levels ranging from $5 to $25 per month. I need that financial support to keep this virtual classroom going. Have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey, and above all, expect surprises.